the one who descended into the deepest depth, has been elevated to the grandest glory. The crowning act of Christ's triumph was not when he issued forth a victor from the tomb, but when he entered the courts of celestial bliss, when the everlasting doors lifted up their heads, and the King of glory went in. Psalm 24, 9. The raising of Christ was in order to his glorification, and it was in our nature. He is exalted above all. The very hands which were nailed to the cross now wield the scepter of universal dominion. How well fitted then is such an one to succor and save unto the uttermost. As faith follows the descent of the Father's beloved to Bethlehem's manger, to Golgotha, to the sepulchre, so let it follow him to the loftiest heights of dignity and bliss. This same Jesus, who was rejected and degraded by Jew and Gentile alike, has been crowned with honor and glory. Hebrews 2, 9. The exaltation of Christ was a necessary part of his mediatorship, for it is from on high he administers his kingdom and makes effectual application of redemption. The ascension of Christ is also an essential part of the gospel. Who is even at the right hand of God? First, this is the place of honor and dignity. When Bathsheba appeared before Solomon, we are told that the king rose up to meet her and bowed himself unto his mother. And sitting down on his throne, he caused a seat to be set for her on his right hand. First Kings 2:19, as a mark of special favor and honor. After the royal proclamation concerning Christ, Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes, aloes and cassia, out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. It is added, King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Psalm 45, 7 through 9, indicating the place of privilege and honor, which is reserved for the Lamb's wife, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, God of covenant relationship, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus. Acts 3.13 This was his mediatorial glory in answer to his prayer in John 17.5 Christ has sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1.3 Second, the right hand of God is the place of supreme authority and power. As we read in Exodus 15:6, Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly 
far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Ephesians one twenty through 23. Our surety then was not only delivered from prison, but exalted to universal dominion, all power in heaven and in earth, being conferred upon him. Then how well suited is he to fight our battles, subdue our iniquities, and supply our every need. Christ has been elevated high above all ranks of creatures, however exalted in the scale of being or whatever their titles and dignities, and all have been placed in absolute subjection to him as under his feet signifies. Thus the entire universe is under his control, upholding all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1, 3, for the well-being of his people, so that no weapon formed against them can prosper. No wonder it is required that all should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. John 5, 23. Third, it is the place of all blessedness. Our bounties and benevolences are distributed by our right hand. Matthew 6, 3. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, 11. One of the great messianic psalms. It is spoken assuredly of such pleasures as Jesus Christ by way of prerogative enjoyeth beyond all the saints and angels. He being at God's right hand, so as none of them are. It was the peculiar encouragement that Jesus Christ had not to be in heaven only as a common saint, but to be in heaven at God's right hand and to have pleasures answerable far above all the pleasures of men and angels. God doth communicate and impart to him to the utmost all his felicity so far forth as that human nature is capable of. Thomas Good Thus in the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12, 2, Christ has the preeminence as in all things else. In accord with this third meaning of the expression, Christ will set the sheep on his right hand, saying to them, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, 34. Fourth, this setting of Christ at the right hand of the majesty on high denotes the endowing his humanity with capacity and ability accordant with the exalted dignity conferred upon him. It was not like an earthly king advancing his favorite to high honor or even elevating his son to share his throne, but that God bestowed upon Christ superlative endowments, anointing him with the oil of gladness above his fellows, that is, giving to him the spirit without measure, fitting him to discharge such an office. This is clear from the immediate context of Ephesians 1, 21. 
where prayer is made that we may understand God's mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenlies. Verses 19 and 20. This fitting of Christ for his exalted position appears in Revelation 5. There a mysterious book is held forth, but none either in heaven or earth was found worthy to open it till the Lamb appeared, and wherein lay his fitness, the Lamb as it had been slain, possessed seven horns and seven eyes. Verse 6, perfect power and perfect intelligence who is even at the right hand of God. Here then is a further guarantee of the safety and perpetuity of the church. And oh, what consolation and encouragement should it afford the tried and trembling believer. He went up with a shout, Psalm 47.5 of conquest, leading captivity captive. His being seated in heaven is proof that his work is finished and his sacrifice accepted. Hebrews 10, 11 and 12. It was as the head and representative of his people, Christ entered heaven to take possession for them. Whither the forerunner is for us entered even Jesus Hebrews 6:20 It is in our nature and name he had gone there to prepare a place for us John 14:2 Thus we have a friend at court for if any one sin we have an advocate with the father 1 John 2:1 His great authority power dominion and glory is being exercised on our behalf the government of the universe is on his shoulder for the well-being, security, and triumph of his church. Hallelujah! What a Savior! God has laid our help upon one that is mighty. Psalm 89:19. 10. Christ's intercession. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Romans 8:34. Here is the grand climax. First, Christ made a complete atonement for the sins of his people. Next, he rose from the dead in proof that his sacrifice was accepted by God. Then he was advanced to the place of supreme honor and power in reward of his undertaking. And now he sues out or asks for his people the benefits he purchased for them. The inexpressible blessedness of this appears in the above order. How many who have been suddenly elevated from poverty to wealth, from ignominy to honor, from weakness to power, promptly forget their former associates and friends? Not so the Lord Jesus, though exalted to inconceivable dignity and dominion, though crowned with unrivaled honor and glory, yet this made no difference in the affections of Christ toward his people left here in this world. His love for them is unabated. His care of and concern for his church undiminished. The good will of the Savior unto his own remains unchanged. The ascended Christ is not wrapped up in his own enthronement. 
but is still occupied with the well-being of his people, maintaining their interests, seeking their good. He ever liveth to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7.25 He knows they are weak and helpless in themselves and are surrounded by those desiring and seeking their destruction, and therefore does he pray, I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me. John 17:11, And he bases that request on the finished work by which he glorified God. Verse 4. The plea which our great high priest urges cannot rest upon our merit, for we have none. It is not in recognition of our worthiness, for we are destitute of such. Nor does our wretchedness furnish the reason which the intercessor urges on our behalf, for that very wretchedness has been brought upon us by our sins. There are no considerations personal to ourselves which Christ can plead on our behalf. No, his all-sufficient sacrifice is the alone plea, and that must prevail. Christ intercedes in heaven because he died for us on earth. Hebrews 9, 24-26 if left entirely to themselves, believers would perish. Temptations and tribulations from without and corruptions from within would prove too strong for them. And therefore does Christ make intercession on their behalf that God would grant them such a supplies of grace and pardoning mercy that they will be preserved from total apostasy. It is not that he prays they may be kept from sin absolutely, but from a fatal and final departure from God. This is evident from the case of the eleven on the night of his betrayal. Not one only, but all of them forsook him and fled. Matthew 26, 56. It was the prevalency of his intercession which brought them back again. That was made more especially evident in the case of Peter. The Lord Jesus foresaw and announced that he would deny him thrice, and lower than that it would seem a Christian cannot fall. Yet he prayed that his faith would fail not, nor did it. It wrought by love and produced repentance. That for which our great high priest particularly asks is the continuance of our believing. Arminians seek to evade this by saying, Christ prays not for the perseverance of the saints in their faith, or that they who once believed should never cease from believing, however wicked they may become, but only for saints while they continue saints. That is, as long as they continue in faith and love, God will not reject them. But the very thing Christ does pray for is that thy faith fail not. Luke 22:32. For the continuance of a living faith, for where that is, there will be good works. And that for which Christ asks must be performed, not only because he is the Son of God, and therefore could ask for nothing contrary to the Father's will, but because his intercession is based upon his sacrifice, he pleads his own merits and sues only for those things 
which he has purchased for his people, the things to which they are entitled. That for which Christ intercedes is clearly revealed in John 17. It is for the preservation, unification, sanctification, and glorification of his people. The substance of his petitions is found in verse 11, where, in effect, he says, Holy Father, thou art concerned for each of these persons and has been viewing them with unspeakable satisfaction from everlasting. Thou gavest them me as a special expression of thy love. My heart is set upon them, and my soul delighteth in them, because they are mine by thy free donation, as I am going to leave them behind me, and they are weak and defenseless in themselves, exposed to many enemies and temptations. I pray thee, keep them. Let them have the person of the Holy Spirit to indwell them. Let him renew their spiritual life and graces day by day. Let him preserve them in my sacred truth. That prayer will be fully answered when Christ will present the church to himself, a glorious church. Ephesians 5, 27. 11. The love of Christ. Ah, what pen is capable of expatiating upon such a theme when even the chief of the apostles was obliged to own that it passes knowledge? Ephesians 3.19 Such was his wondrous love that in order to save his people, the Son of God left heaven for earth, laid aside the robes of his glory, and took upon him the form of a servant. Such was his wondrous love that he voluntarily became the homeless stranger here, having not where to lay his head. Such was his wondrous love that he shrank not from being despised and rejected of men, suffering himself to be spat upon, buffeted, and his hair plucked out. Yea, such was his wondrous love for his church that he endured the cross, where he was made a curse for her, where the wrath of a sin-hating God was poured upon him, so that for a season he was actually abandoned by him. Truly his love is strong as death. Many waters cannot quench it, neither can the floods drown it. Song of Solomon 8, 6, and 7. Mark how that love was tried and proved by the unkind response it met with from the most favored of his disciples. So little did they lay to heart his solemn announcement that he was about to be delivered into the hands of men and be slain by them. They disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. Mark 9:31 and 34. When the awful cup of woe was presented to him in Gethsemane, and his agony was so intense that he sweat great drops of blood, the apostles were unable to watch with him for a single hour. When his enemies, accompanied by a great rabble armed with swords and staves, came to arrest him, all the disciples forsook him and fled. Matthew 26:56. And had a writer and reader been in their place, we had done no otherwise. 
did such base ingratitude freeze the Savior's affection for them and cause him to abandon their cause? No, indeed, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. John 13:1. To the end of their unworthiness and unappreciativeness. Oh, my reader, his people are the objects of Christ's everlasting love. Before ever the earth was, his delights were with them. Proverbs 8:31, And have continued ever since. As the Father hath loved Christ himself, so Christ loves his people. John 15:9, With a love that is infinite, immutable, eternal, nothing can separate us from it. Romans 8, 35. Those whom he loves are the special portion and inheritance given to him by the Father. And will he lose his portion when it is in his power to keep it? No, he will not. They shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts. In that day, when I make up my jewels, Malachi 3.17, when they were given to him by the Father, it was with the express charge that, of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day, John 6.39. And therefore do we find him saying to the Father, Those that thou gavest to me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but not except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. John 17:12, And he was a devil from the beginning. Consider well the various relationships which believers sustain to Christ. They are the mystical body of which he is the head, members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Ephesians 5.30 They are the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Ephesians 1.23 And thus he would be incomplete, mutilated, if one of them perished. They are laid upon him as a foundation that is sure, Isaiah 28:16, built upon him as a rock against which the gates of hell shall not prevail, Matthew 16:18. They are his redeemed, bought with a price, purchased at the cost of his life's blood. Then how must he regard them? Consider well the terms of endearment used of them. Christians are of the travail of his soul. Isaiah 53:11. They are his brethren. Romans 8:29. His fellows. Psalm 45:7. His wife. Revelation 19:7. They are set as a seal upon his heart. Song of Solomon 8:6. Engraved in the palms of his hands, Isaiah 49:16. They are his crown of glory and royal diadem, Isaiah 62:3. Since they are so precious in his sight, he will not suffer one to perish. Twelve. The gift of the Holy Spirit. 
in contemplating the person and work of the Spirit in the economy of redemption, we must needs view him in connection with the everlasting covenant and the mediation of Christ. The descent of the Spirit is inseparably related to what has been before us in the previous sections. When the Savior ascended on high, he received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also. Psalm 68:18. And as his exaltation was in reward for his triumphant undertaking, so also were those gifts chiefest of which was the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.33. As Christ is the unspeakable gift of the Father unto us, so the Holy Spirit is the supreme gift of Christ to his people. Since Christ is man as well as God, it is required of him that he make request for whatever he receives at the hands of the Father. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen, the Gentiles, for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Psalm 2, 8. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. John 14:16. The redemptive work of Christ merited the Spirit for his people. The Spirit was given to Christ in consequence of his having so superlatively glorified God on the earth and in answer to his intercession. It is due to his praying that the Holy Spirit not only renews the regenerate day by day, but that he first brought them from death unto life. This is intimated in the For the Rebellious Also of Psalm 68:18. even while they were in a state of alienation from God. The dispensing of the Spirit is in the hands of the exalted Christ. Therefore is he spoken of as He that hath the seven spirits of God. Revelation 3, 1. The Holy Spirit in the fullness or plenitude of his gifts. To his immediate care is now committed the elect of God. As Christ preserved them during the days of his earthly sojourn, John 17:12, so the Spirit safeguards them while he is on high. This is clearly intimated in John 14:3, where the Lord Jesus declares, I will come again and receive, not take, you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. They will be handed back to him by the blessed Spirit. 13. The Indwelling of the Spirit The Holy Spirit was purchased for his people by the oblation of Christ, and is bestowed upon them through his intercession to abide with them forever. The manner in which he abides with those on whom he is bestowed is by a gracious indwelling. God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons, that is, that we might have conferred upon us the legal status of sonship, and because ye are sons, by virtue of legal oneness with the Son, 
God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. Galatians 4, 4 through 6. What a marvelous yet mysterious thing this is, that the third person of the Trinity should take up his abode within fallen creatures. It is not merely that the influences or graces of the Spirit are communicated to us, but that he himself dwells within us, not in our minds, though they are illumined by him, but in our hearts, the center of our beings, from which are... The Issues of Life, Proverbs 4:23. This was the grand promise of God in the covenant. I will put my spirit within you, Ezekiel 36:27, and compare Ezekiel 37:14, the fulfillment of which our surety obtained afore us, being by the right hand of God, exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth this. Acts 2.33 For the dispensing of him is now in the hands of Christ, as we have pointed out above. Thus it is that the inhabitation of the Spirit is the distinguishing mark of the regenerate. But ye are not in the flesh, as to your legal standing before God, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Romans 8, 9. It is the indwelling of the Spirit of God which identifies the Christian, and thus he is called the Spirit of Christ, because he occupies the believer with Christ and conforms him to his image. The apprehension of this wondrous fact exerts a sobering influence upon the believer, causing him to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? 1 Corinthians 6.19 Now the Spirit takes up his residence in the saints, not for a season only, but never to leave them. This is my covenant with them, saith the Lord, unto the Redeemer. See verse 20. My Spirit, that is, upon thee, and my word which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. Isaiah 59:21. That was a solemn promise of the Father unto the Mediator, that the Spirit should continue forever with the Redeemer and the redeemed. The Blessed Spirit comes not as a transient visitor, but as a permanent guest of the soul. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. John 14:16. Since then, the Spirit takes up his abode in the renewed soul forever. How certain it is that he will be preserved from apostasy. This will be the more evident from our next division, when it will appear that the Spirit is a powerful, active, and sanctifying agent with the Christian. 14. The Operations of the Spirit These are summed up in 
He which hath begun a good work in you will finish it. Philippians 1, 6. The reference is to our regeneration, completed in our sanctification, preservation, and glorification. First, he imparts spiritual life to one who is dead in trespasses and sins, and then he sustains and maintains that life by nourishing it and calling it forth into exercise and act so that it becomes fruitful and abounds in good works. Every growth of spirituality is the work of the Holy Spirit. As the green blade was his, so is the ripening corn. The increase of life, as much as the beginning thereof, must still come by the gracious power of the Spirit of God. We never have more life, or even know we need more, or groan after it, except as he works in us to desire and agonize after it. Were the spirit totally withdrawn from the Christian, he would soon lapse back into spiritual death. But thank God, there is no possibility of any such dire calamity. Every born-again soul has the infallible guarantee. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Psalm 138.8 Let us now consider more particularly some eminent acts of the Spirit in the believer and effects of His grace exercised in them. He empowers and moves them unto obedience. I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Ezekiel 36:27. The two things are inseparable, an indwelling Spirit and holy conduct from those indwelt. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Romans 8:14. The Spirit guides into the paths of righteousness by a blessed combination of invincible power and gentle suasion, not forcing us against our wills, but sweetly constraining us. He directs the activities of the Christian by enlightening his understanding, warming his affections, stimulating his holy inclinations, and moving his will to do that which is pleasing unto God. In this way is that divine promise fulfilled. I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldst go. Isaiah 48:17. And thus is his prayer answered. Order my steps in thy word. Psalm 119, 133. By His gracious indwelling, the Spirit affords the saints supportment. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us our infirmities. Romans 8:26. If the believer were left to himself, he would never see, by faith, the all-wise hand of God in his afflictions. Still less would his heart ever honestly say concerning them, Thy will be done. If left to himself, the believer would never seek grace to patiently endure chastisement, still less cherish the hope that afterward it would yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Hebrews 12, 11 No, 
Rather would he chafe and kick like a bullock, unaccustomed to the yoke, Jeremiah 31:18, and yield to the vile temptation to curse God and die, Job 2, 9. If the believer were left to himself, he would never have the assurance that his acutest sufferings were among the all things which work together for his ultimate good. Still less would he glory in his infirmity that the power of Christ might rest upon him. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 No, such holy exercises of heart are not the products of fallen human nature. Instead, they are the immediate, gracious, lovely fruits of the Spirit brought forth in such uncongenial soil. By His gracious indwelling, the Spirit energies the believer, strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. Ephesians 3.16 This is manifested in many directions. How often He exerts upon the believer a restraining influence, subduing the lusts of the flesh and holding him back from a course of folly by causing a solemn awe to fall upon him. The fear of the Lord is to depart from evil, and the Spirit is the author of that holy fear. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Spirit which dwelleth in us. Second Timothy 1.14 He is the one who oils the wheels of the saints' obedience. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Galatians 5.5 5. Otherwise, the deferring of our hope would cause the soul to utterly pine away. Hence we find the spouse praying to the Spirit for invigoration and fructification. Awake, O north wind, and come thou south. Blow upon my garden that the spices thereof may flow out. Song of Solomon 4.16 The graces which the indwelling Spirit produces are durable and lasting, particularly the three cardinal ones. Now abideth faith, hope, love. 1 Corinthians 13.13 13. Faith is that grace which is much more precious than of gold that perisheth. 1 Peter 1, 7. It is its imperishability which constitutes its superior excellency. It is of the operation of God. Colossians 2.12 And we know that whatsoever is of Him, it shall be forever. Ecclesiastes 3.14 Christ praying that it fail not, and therefore no matter how severely it shall be tested, its possessor can declare, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Job 13.15 The hope of the Christian is as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. For it is cast on Christ the foundation, from whence it can never be removed. Hebrews 6, 18 and 19 As to the believer's love, though its initial ardor may be cooled, yet it cannot be quenched. Though first love any be left, it cannot be lost. Under the darkest times, Christ is still the object of his love, 
as the cases of the church in Song of Solomon 3, 1 through 3, and of Peter, John 21, 17. Evidence. 15. The relations which the Holy Spirit sustains to the Christian. In Ephesians 1.14, he is designated the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Compare 2 Corinthians 1.22. Now an earnest is part a payment, assuring the full reward in due season. It is more than a pledge, being an actual portion and token of that which is promised. If the inheritance were precarious, suspended on conditions of uncertain performance, the spirit could not in truth or propriety be termed the earnest thereof. If an earnest is a guarantee among men, much more so between God and his people. He is also the first of fruits of glorification unto the believer. Romans 8:23. The antipast of heaven, the initial beams of the rising sun of eternal bliss in the Christian's soul. He is also the anointing which we have received from Christ. Compare 2 Corinthians 1.21. And this abideth in us. 1 John 2.17. Again, he is the believer's seal. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30. That is, until their bodies are delivered from the grave. Among other purposes, a seal is to secure. Can then the treasure which the Spirit guards be lost? No. As Christ was sealed, John 6:27, and in consequence upheld by the Spirit, so that he failed not, Isaiah 42, 1 and 4, so is the believer. It is impossible for any saint to perish. Chapter 6, Its Blessedness In an earlier section we dwelt upon the deep importance of this doctrine. Here we wish to show something of its great preciousness. Let us begin by pointing out the opposite. Suppose that the gospel proclaimed only a forgiveness of all sins up to the moment of conversion and announced that believers must henceforth keep themselves from everything unworthy of this signal mercy. That means are provided, motives supplied, and warnings given of the fatal consequences which will surely befall those who fail to make a good use of those means and diligently responded to those motives that whether or not he shall ultimately reach heaven is thus left entirely in the believer's own hands, then what? We may well ask what would be the consequences of such a dismal outlook. What would be the thoughts begotten and the spirit engendered by such a gospel? What effect would it produce upon those who really believed it? Answers to these questions should prepare us to more deeply appreciate the converse. It hardly requires a profound theologian to reply to the above queries. They have only to be carefully pondered, and the simplest Christian should be able to perceive for himself 
what would be the inevitable result. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.